finished the last session just getting through the Gospels, and now, except for, and we finished with Luke. And I told you I like to read Luke and Acts together, even though they're, they're separated in the, in the text. I always like to go right from Luke, because his story just continues into the book of Acts. And so tonight, we want to begin with the book of Acts, take a look at this now as the history part. And you'll see a lot, throughout the scripture, you're going to see the same thing even more pronounced in the Old Testament. There are books about history. Uh, that give us kind of the timeline of what's going on. Then there's books that are more thought-provoking, whether it's the wisdom literature, the prophetic literature, or as we're going to look at tonight as well, the, the letters from the apostles that kind of breathe life into more the theology of what was going on. So Acts sets the stage for that. It kind of gives us how, how the early church started, how it progressed, and what happened. So we're going to take a look at those early believers and what they went on. If you remember our little chart from last night, this row of grapevines, which we're really going to exploit in days to come, particularly uh, in the last sessions on the Old Covenant. We've talked about Jesus now, and now we're going to go in that transition from Jesus at, to Paul, which Paul representing not the most significant figure, just the key figure in terms of the writing he did to help us process this. There are obviously James, Peter, Silas, Timothy. There's many other characters that are as significant as Paul in the life of the church, just didn't write as much as Paul wrote. So that's why we're using Paul kind of as the hinge pin to talk about now how the early church begins to process this journey. We know at the end, at the beginning of Acts, they start out as this band of 12 or so, maybe 120 that were ended up in the upper room, the small band of people. They're a little bit fearful. Their, their leader's just been killed. Now he's ascended. Now they really feel all alone. And they're in the upper room because Jesus said, stay here until something significant happens. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And so hang out there. So they're hanging around in Jerusalem, and, I, and they're doing stuff because they've got time to kill, I guess. So they, they appoint the next apostle because they're, well, that'll be 12, and now we're short one with Judas dying. So they, they roll the dice, so to speak, and come up with uh, Mattathias and add him to the band. We never hear from him again. So you've got to wonder, and this is I, what I want to underscore from Acts, is you've got to wonder if in the book of Acts, we're not being told this is how you should do it, because I don't think anybody from then on says, you know, we need an elder. Let's cast some lots and see what we get one. Uh, I think it just says this is what they did. And they came up with a guy who, in fact, didn't seem to add anything to what was going on in that early church. Paul might well have been the 12th apostle. Paul might well have been the one God chose to bring in, and he certainly lived the weight of that kind of life alongside the other 11. Uh, but they just doing, I think, what we always do. We do in our own strength what we think is best, and then we create these things that don't always turn out to be the best. And so we come on, Luke again is, is still the writer of this passage. He's, uh, as we said, a physician the other night. He's, he's moving from that platform. The dates that we're talking about, Jesus coming 6 to 5 B.C. is when he was born. So we didn't get the B.C.A.D. right. And I realize these are old terminologies. Now we're using B.C.E. before the common era and C.E. the common era. But I'm still sticking with B.C. and A.D. because I prefer those terminologies. But I realize it's a little old covenant or a little old uh, school. Um, but about 27 A.D., somewhere in there, he dies and is resurrected and ascended to the Father. And then Paul's life somewhere, and this is, this is not how long he lived. This is his writing time, the times of letters he's writing. He died around 68, 69. These dates are not precise. These are estimates as best we can piece together the tradition, as best we can piece together the history that we do have. So we're going to fill in. We've already filled in the Gospels. Now we're going to fill in Acts and the letters to, to uh, Paul uh, Peter, Hebrews, Jude, John, and, and Revelation. I'm going to fill those in. And as you're going to see, we're going to fill those in a little bit by those who were early 
the earlier letters, so we kind of read those together because they have a certain sense together that's a different from the middle letters, a little bit different sense, and then you get the later letters. And what I want you to see as you read through the epistles is that there's the same redemptive movement. It's going on through the book of Acts, this revelational flow, things we thought were true, things we tried, didn't turn out maybe to be the best answer, things they learned by the Holy Spirit going forward, the struggle with the Gentiles and whether they should even let them be Christians is, is a good example of that in the book of Acts. Do we let them in? Do we not let them in? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But that flow continues through the apostles' writings as well. There's things they're writing early, and they become more, more wise and more clear later because this is an unfolding revelation. As we talked about last, last time we were together, there's this, I think Scripture is this progressive unveiling of who God is. It culminates in the Son, the person of the Son. And we get a good picture of that in the Gospels. And then we get more of a picture of that as the apostles in the letters they're writing are unpacking the risen Christ, the Christ they're coming to know, not because he's with them in the flesh, but because he's living in their hearts. And they're coming. And so this knowledge base is still growing in their lives. We'll talk about these four uh, trips. No, we've got to hold on just a second. I'm going to need to stop. Can we stop? Um, I don't think that's the right PowerPoint loaded. So, excuse me. Let me get this slide to the same point. Okay. What we get in the book of Acts is, is this story now of how this whole church unfolds. There's a couple of key things to look for. There's, there's a number of major sermons. There's, there's Peter giving a couple of them. Paul gives a number of them. There's Stephen's sermon. It's a great sermon, Acts 7. So we've got these major sections of sermons that we'll look at in more detail later on because some of them actually play into how we look at the Holy Spirit and how we look at the life of Jesus. So we'll, we'll play into that more in some of the sessions coming up. But there, so there's, there's that. There's the sermons. And the second part of that then is the, is the voyages of Paul. And I've included some maps in your notes so that you can look at these from session eight and actually be in the packet you had previously. But in, in, the, in the missionary journeys, what we have is Paul leaves Antioch with Barnabas and they go out. They, they don't even know, they don't have a plan. It's just, they were together praying, Acts 13, and go out and do. And so they go out and do. And they start by going to this area right here, the bottom part of Turkey. What we know as Galatia, we'll learn this part as Galatia, Lystra, Derby, Iconium. And they go out and they visit these places and they hang out with them for a couple of years and come back to Antioch. There's a second journey where they leave and they go out and they visit these places again. And then they end up crossing over into, into Europe through Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens and Corinth. And they spend some time here and then hit Ephesians, Ephesus on the way back again. Then they decide to make a third missionary journey. And this time they skip almost this area almost entirely and they go back to Europe and they spend their time here and then hit Ephesians on the way home. And then finally there's a fourth journey where Paul goes all the way to Rome at the end of, at the, end of the, 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 uh, the book itself. Those four missionary journeys give context. The early sermons give context to this unfolding story. And that's what we'll look at, that's what you'll look at as you read these. And, and really spend time, I think we'd send a rush the story and miss the sermons and just what is Stephen saying to this angry mob and why is he saying it? 
what is the early church doing? Is they're trying to figure out how to handle problems. And again, so many of what we've heard is, is Acts is prescriptive. So if Acts said, we've got a problem with feeding the widows, so we appoint elders. And then for 2,000 years, every time there's a need, we appoint uh, some kind of overseers or deacons to handle problems. And I even wonder, I'll give you an example. This is why I wonder about one of that progressive revelation, that revelational flow. Is the appointing of deacons an answer that the Holy Spirit gave the early church? Or was it just something they saw to do and did it? And I think Luke doesn't make a determination. He doesn't say it was good or bad. It's just what they did. But if you read through it, I have some questions. I have some questions because Jesus said, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. That's how he told the disciples to live. They come to a moment where the Greek believers are not caring for their widows as well as the Hebrew Jews were taking care of their widows. And so they've got a problem, and they decide to fix this problem. We'll create a system. We'll create a, a technology to handle it. So we're going to appoint men full of the Holy Spirit. That was a good choice. They chose wonderful people who are going to administrate this fund and help care for these widows. And the disciples say, you know, we really need to give ourselves to the word and to prayer. And that's as, as oft-quoted as a phrase as you hear oftentimes from pastors and other people who want to believe that, you know what, I, I can't do with the details. I've got to give myself to the word and prayer. And by the word, they mean the scriptures, right? Instead of the word, giving ourselves to Jesus and to prayer, which was nice, except here's what happens in Acts. After they appoint these deacons, among which are Stephen and Philip, now, for the next three chapters in the book of Acts, the major disciples become irrelevant to what God's doing. Stephen is the one making this huge pronouncement before the Pharisees that gets him stoned. He's part of now, he's, just, he's serving, but in his serving, he becomes known in a very different way. Philip goes on to Samaria. None of the other guys have left Jerusalem, gone on to Samaria. To, but Philip goes to Samaria, ends up with a huge revival going on there, so much so that in Acts 8, Peter and John have to sneak down there and go, hey, what's going on and can we help? And I wonder if there isn't something to the guys. Jesus taught that waiting tables is really the essence of what ministry is. It's serving. It's not lording over. It's not leading from above. It's serving alongside. And the fact that these two become the most significant vessels during this season might say that God's really underscoring it is being a servant that opens the door to the things God wants to do in your life. Not by reserving yourself and holding it for prayer and the ministry of the word as they did. The Acts chapter 9 then, the key character comes in, Paul. And he becomes a very significant character going forward in the whole unfolding of this of this life of the church. And then he's the one that heads out on these missionary journeys. First, for Barnabas, they have a great journey come back. And I love this. I think we miss this so often. They come back to Antioch and they report. Remember how it started? Acts 13, they were just the elders and the, uh, the, the teachers and the prophets were together in prayer. So people that were somewhat known to be prophetic, somewhat known to have teaching gifts, they were together in prayer and the Holy Spirit spoke and said, send Barnabas and Paul to go out. So they go out. They don't, as far as we know, raise money. They don't start an evangelistic association. They didn't start a ministry at all. They just went out. They wandered through towns, went to synagogues, started to share that the fulfillment of the Old Testament has come in Jesus Christ. And what you find in these people are engaged with the message. And the next day, next time around, the synagogue has even more people in it. And even the people in the synagogue are excited about this message until even more people come to the synagogue. And then the synagogue powers that be... They start getting threatened at every city. The persecution comes because who are all these outsiders and why are they in our meeting? And now 
jealousy arises and they throw Paul and Barnabas out. And so Paul and Barnabas end up out of the synagogues, out in the street and in homes, helping mostly Gentiles now who wanted to embrace this message when the Jews rejected it because it was ruining their nice little synagogue life that they had come to enjoy. That's pretty much the pattern in, in all the towns they go to. But they come back at the end of Acts 14 and they say something you just never hear today. They come back to the church at Antioch and say, we completed the work God gave us to do. Who does that today? Because we don't do tasks anymore. We don't listen to God and do what He tells us. We start ministries. And the thing about starting a ministry is you have to create a system to perpetuate it, which means boards, and it means a name, and it means an identity. And then you just can't do one thing. You've got to keep doing things to prove yourself. I love that they could come back and say, we're done. We did what was asked. And now they're ready for what's next, but they have no angst to do what's next. They have no, that was so good, we should do it again. No, we're home now. We're hanging out here until later they get moved again to go. And if you remember the story, and this is such a picture, I think, of what we've had in church history for 2,000 years. Paul and Barnabas agree to go out together again, except now they've got a problem. Barnabas wants to take this guy named John Mark. I really, this is a good guy. We got to take him and go on this trip. And Paul is saying, I'm not going with that guy. They took him last time, and he betrayed us. He got in the middle of, you know, whatever persecution. And John Mark, you know what? He chickened out and went home. Took an early out. And, and Paul's just not going on the mission field with that guy. So Barnabas has this leading, I want John Mark to go. Paul has this leading, I'm not going with John Mark. And they have what Acts calls a violent disagreement. That sounds like brothers coming to blows, doesn't it? That's violent disagreement, so much so they just decided we can't go together. And so they have probably the first, quote-unquote, church split. The first two brothers can't get along. So they each, Barnabas goes out with John Mark. They do some things together. Paul takes Silas. He goes out and picks up Timothy early on in the next journey. And so out of one apostolic team, now there are two apostolic teams. The visitation the second time, let's go encourage people we already were part of for a season. And then God led them into to Europe to go into modern-day Greece and to do some work there among cities they would not been into. Some cities very receptive. Churches end up happening in Thessalonica, Philippi, some of those. He's also in Athens, and nothing ends up. We know. We never hear about a church later in Athens. We don't know if they didn't find anybody. Remember Jesus warned, you can go into a village. Nobody responds. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. We don't know what became of Athens other than it didn't seem like something got established there. But then on to Corinth and Paul's there for a number of years, then on to Ephesus and then home again. And then he gets the stirring to go back out again. And mostly what we're following, we don't even know what Barnabas' second journey was like. We do know this. Later, Barnabas and Paul reconcile. We do know that that relationship gets fixed in time. They realize, you know what, maybe it's just you had a different leading than I and they could be patient with that. So the whole of Acts, there's this unveiling of the spreading of the gospel. So much so that early in the book of Acts, we, we, have, we have the church at the beginning of Acts, 120 people. They're all Jewish. They're pretty much powerless and afraid, hidden away in an upper room. Peter and James are the kind of the key characters in that. And they're only in Jerusalem. At the end of the book of Acts, it encompasses maybe 20 years or so. Now there's thousands of believers. Jews and Gentiles both, which is quite a story. And now they have great influence over the whole empire. And there's a boldness, and they're, they're really such a threat to the powers that be in various communities. Various communities. There's a lot of persecution going on. Paul, Silas, and Luke now have come, become the main characters at the end of Acts. Peter's still around, but Luke isn't with him, so we're getting Paul's side of things. And now the church is spread throughout the Middle East, Asia, Europe, 
Tradition has it that Thomas ends up in India during this time, and Thomas, it's not mentioned in Acts, but Thomas has a great outreach in, in India, the old doubting Thomas, as they called him, Europe and North Africa. So in just a few years, this gospel has spread prolifically throughout the empire. Paul's ending up in Rome now. That's where he's in Rome, imprisoned right at the end of the book of Acts. And so we, we've had that story now told to us. The one that's interesting in terms of this revelational flow is the whole idea of the Gentiles. When the, when the early believers got saved, it never crossed their minds because what, when the Jews had been chosen to be God's people, and God, is, as we remember from the Old Testament, said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you to make you a blessing. The purpose of choosing Israel was to demonstrate God's love and life to the whole world. Israel, very early on, started to mistake that to be a matter of privilege. We're God's people, and they are the Gentiles. They are the pagans. They are the godless people. And they began to get that construct. So deep-seated was that in the psyche, even of these disciples. Even though there were times when Jesus touched non-Jewish people with healing, with life, the centurion son, the Syrophoenician woman... There were people that God touched, Jesus touched in significant ways. They don't have any sense that this gospel is any greater than just for us Jews. And that's all they've been talking about. Well, at least in Jerusalem, until Peter has a vision. And God just says, there's three people coming to get you. Go wherever they want you to go. God doesn't even tell him where they're going because he knew that Peter wouldn't figure that out at all. Ever notice how God, somebody said one of the Old Testament names for God should have been Jehovah Sneaky. Because he, he doesn't always tell you exactly what's going on. He just says, three people are coming to the door, go with them. And where they want him to go is into a Gentile's home, which is beneath Peter's Judaism to even be in a Gentile home. But he had this vision, this food, this unclean food. And God said, don't call unclean what I call clean. Then he gets this invitation with these three, one, two, three. He said, follow these three. So now he's in, in Cornelius' house. And he's still not there to share the gospel with them. He's there to say, look what God has given us. Too bad you all left out of it. That's pretty much the gist of the sermon. God has visited us. And at the very end of his explaining to them this incredible work of Christ that they witnessed, the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles in Cornelius' house. And they have the same manifestation that Peter had seen at Pentecost with the others, all of them and everybody else. And so he goes, what else could I do but baptize them? Acts chapter 11, he comes back to the elders in Jerusalem, and they are not happy. They have heard, you did what? You baptized Gentiles? You preached to Gentiles? And so he has to go back and actually defend, here's what happened. Had a vision, had an obedience, followed it through. God, I didn't do this. God did this. I wouldn't have done this. And so what else could I do but baptize them? And they go, wow, this must be a God thing. And that was the first inkling. This is nine, ten years into the development of the church before they had even a sense that this gospel was bigger than themselves. That's amazing to me. That whatever God's working on in their lives, He's not pushing that button, not yet, not in Jerusalem. What we find out at the end of, of Acts 11 is Antioch is already a church of Jews and Gentiles. They've been reaching out to Gentiles. None of the elders, none of the apostles were up there to mess that up. Whoever was up in Antioch, Barnabas and others, they had a sense that this gospel was greater. They didn't have to have this wonderful experience Peter had to, to finally open the door to the Gentiles. They were already opening that door. They were already experiencing it. And they were letting people in. And so th that, that's an area of growth that they came to say, well, gosh, it's not just for us, it's for everyone. 
And then later, and we'll see this a lot in the letters as it begins to unfold in the epistles, but we see it in Acts chapter 15, this council in Jerusalem, this big dispute over do Gentile believers need to be circumcised? Ultimately, do you need to be a Jew first to be a Christian? So do you have to be a proselytized, do you have to be proselytized into Judaism, which involves circumcision, or, and a whole lot of other things you've got to observe, or can you just go? And be a, be a believer without it. And so Acts chapter 15, they get together, and this is a great moment. There, there's great diversity of opinion in the church. What I love about Acts 15 is they're going to sit down and sort this out together. They didn't end up splitting and saying, well, you know what? Some of us think circumcision is important, and we're going to do it. Some of us think it's not, and we're not going to do it. They actually worked to get to something that seemed good to them and good to the Holy Spirit. And when they got to that resolve, and this is another wonderful thing about that we sometimes miss in all of our church activities oftentimes, church with quotes, is that instead of asking for a lot, instead of coming out of that meeting saying, well, let's, now we've got the program to all the Christians, all they said is, you know what, let's agree on these three things. We're not going to say circumcision is essential, but we are going to ask people to abstain from immorality, to remember the poor, and to not eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's the three, that's it. Well, that's really, I mean, that's just wonderful. They would come up with something so simple. Seemed good to them and good to the Holy Spirit. And you can read about how they got to that in Acts 15, which is just a great example. And they agree that circumcision isn't necessary. And then in Acts 16, if you remember, Paul takes Timothy and has him circumcised because he's got a Greek father, Jewish mother. And Paul doesn't want Timothy to be an offense where they're sharing the gospel. So Paul goes and fights for the freedom not to. And then, at least on Timothy's behalf, I don't know how brave Paul would have been to do this himself, but he gives up Timothy's freedom for a larger purpose of not creating this offense that we're going to have to work through everywhere we're going. So he allowed, because people knew of his uh, ancestry not being all Jewish, but partially Jewish, that maybe we ought to take care of this with Timothy. And Timothy obviously consents to it. That battle goes on. It still goes on in Galatia. It goes on in other places later on. There's a group called the Judaizers who evidently didn't like what was resolved at the council at Jerusalem. They were also part of the problem before the council. There was this conflict between it. So again, what I, I think what, what I, I want us to see is you're reading through the book of Acts, as you're reading through these epistles, it's just not a set of rules. They figured it out on day one, and they just made all the right decisions. They're struggling to learn how to live in this grace. They're sorting out what's true and what's not true, and where do we allow people to live. And it's not just this perfect framed law book. It's people growing to become the church God wants them to become. And it's not highly organized. There's not a strategy going on. There's not a denomination that has settled in. There's not a hierarchy structure that's obvious in the book of Acts. There are some leaders in Jerusalem, which were just the apostles, who who seemed to have the weight of the fact that they had been with Jesus and they could tell the real story because they were there. But you don't create these hierarchical models that we just unquestioningly put into our church life today. And what you won't find, as I said yesterday, you won't find this emphasis on church planters. These were just people sharing the gospel, inviting people to Jesus, teaching them how to follow him. They weren't planning churches. They weren't appointing elders before they left town. They just taught people how to live in Jesus, kind of began their sense of community, and then pushed on to somewhere else. And often when they came back later in places, they might appoint elders. But they didn't at the first. They wanted people just to get it, to grow, to experience this life. As I said yesterday, I think this is underscored in the book of Acts and the epistles. Church is not the objective of the people of God. Church is the fruit of the people of God. 
when we learn to live loved and we begin to have the conversations of, of love-based living and, and being freed from condemnation and learning to listen and follow Jesus and embrace his life, then the church takes shape among us. We, we find people who share that same passion. We find things God might call us to do together. We embrace and love the community conversations we have in that context. Unfortunately, we don't even think of starting churches that way today. We start by planting a church. Someone's got a vision to plant something somewhere, sets the rules, the theology, the way we're going to go, invites people to become part of this. Hopefully in that they come to know Jesus instead of starting with coming to know Jesus and building friendships and then see what expression God might give the church in the world. Instead, we impose a system from the very beginning and only do we impose a system. There's 5,000 different church systems that you're supposed to choose the model you think is best. I've got 150 books on my shelf. All of them say, this is the way you do the New Testament church. They all quote the same scriptures to very, very different conclusions, which leads you to say, that's why you can't just proof text your way through this book. If you do, you're going to get to whatever conclusion you want, which may not be the one that God wants as we look at this as a story. <music> 